So today we are continuing in our series in the Apostles' Creed, and we are at a, a particular point, a phrase we've been building through the doctrine of Jesus. If you remember, each each um, there's three sections of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we're in that section on Jesus Christ right now, and we've this is the third week of that uh, series uh, that on Jesus Christ, and in particular. We're hitting uh, what I think is, is, is maybe the most important, single most important doctrine, not that they aren't all important, um, but this is like a linchpin. This is like Christianity utterly falls apart completely without it. And that is the simple phrase, on the third day, he rose again. A resurrection is at the very core of everything that Christianity is and has believed for 2,000 years. Uh, C.S. Lewis expresses it this way. He says, the first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe this gospel, no gospels would have ever been written. According to the early church then, even uh, Christianity uh, would not exist. There would be no Christians, no Christian message if it were not for the gospel. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So today, um, we're going to be looking at this, this doctrine that, that Christ rose, but I don't want, um, I'm not going to deal with it like I typically do with Easter. Easter is, you know, building the argument and then, you know, uh, uh, focusing exclusively on the resurrection. I want us today to look at the implications of the resurrection. If you want to read more, you want to understand more about the biblical uh, understanding of the resurrection and, and uh, what it means if there was no resurrection. First Corinthians 15, the entire chapter is written about this, so I encourage you to go there. But today, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. So I follow, encourage you to follow along as I read in your copy of God's Word or your app. And then uh, when I'm done, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. I invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to, uh, to boast about us um, so that you might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, I want to pause on that real quickly because you're like, what is Paul saying here? Uh, you have to understand, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church and they've got this, it's a crazy church and they've got people in there that are pushing back on Paul and saying, Paul's only in it for himself. Paul's only trying to get people to follow him. Look at him, he's self-serving, he's self-centered. Uh, and, and Paul is saying, oh yeah, not, not really. Like we're, we don't commend ourselves based on earthly things. We, we commend ourselves to you on, based on God. Um, and he says, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one who has died, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live, uh, who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, we don't look at the earthly ideas. For even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to highlight this truth that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And then I want to highlight a couple of implications for us uh, today. So the, the truth is, is Jesus Christ rose. And, and in verse 15, it says, Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. Did you get that? I read over that a few moments ago, like I read Tuesday, I had a cheeseburger. Yesterday, I, uh, I, I played, I, you know, watched a movie. I, I read it as like a, a random fact, but the implications could not be more. The weight of what happened could not be more. Jesus really rose from the grave. There's some who speculate it was just spiritually he rose from the grave. His body is actually in the ground somewhere and long since deteriorated, but you know, he, he rose from the grave spiritually. But the fact is the scripture teaches very clearly that it's a bodily resurrection, that Jesus Christ rose from the grave um, physically. And in this resurrection, there was a transformation of his earthly body into an eternal spiritual body. And this body is what's described as the first fruits of the new creation. So, so Jesus is literally the first flavor, the first taste of what the new creation is. So for 2,000 years across the globe, Christians have affirmed, as they've affirmed the Apostles' Creed, we've affirmed that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose really, really rose, like, like came out of the tomb. We were affirming that Jesus took on the full penalty of our sin, of my sin and your sin, the full wrath of God for all that, that you and I deserve, that he took that and then died and, and felt the weight of death, but three days later rose from the grave. And we don't believe that he stumbled out of the tomb. We don't believe that this was, you know, the walking dead and, Pete, and he came out and people were like, ah, you know, and, and freaked out because he looked weird. And no, this is a, we believe he came out. We don't believe he came out, you know, struggling with what he had been through on the cross. We believe he was unfettered as a completely transformed physical body. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, don't the, doesn't the Bible talk about the nail scars and stuff? Yes. And you know what those are? They are trophies of redemption. And Jesus Christ did not restore a full body because he wants to now and forever display to the world that it is finished. The price has been paid and we can see one day when we stand before him in the new heavens and new earth and see him in his resurrected glorious body, we will see his nail-scarred hands, we will see his nail-scarred feet, and we will, we will rejoice in what he did for us on the cross. Now, around this, the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, there have been doubts, questions, theories, curiosity, right? For 2,000 years, one of the things that Christians, I think, don't do a good job of is acknowledging that while we would say, yes, we believe the Bible teaches Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and we believe it absolutely, and we hold to it, is the fact that it's crazy. 
Like, it sounds crazy. It, we, it's so crazy, we're saying that only one person that has ever existed in the history of the universe has done it. And so if it doesn't feel a little crazy saying Jesus rose, then you're probably not actually understanding it fully. And in fact, if you don't struggle with, if you don't have questions, if you've never doubted, if you've never had a curiosity, if you've never wondered, then you probably have not thought deeply about it. Because resurrections don't happen every day. They don't, right? That's why it's, it's crazy. We're saying a guy who was dead is no longer dead, but not only did he come back to life and walking around among us, he is raised eternally. That death cannot hold him again. Death cannot control him again. He will never die. Now, we believe this. It is part of our affirmation of faith. The Apostles' Creed's been read around the world. I, I couldn't even imagine how many Sundays in how many churches across the globe for 2,000 years or for 1,500 years since the Apostles' Creed really came to be formed has, has, has it been read and affirmed. And then outside of that, how many other Sundays has the pastor's sermon and the people of God sung about, declared, and affirmed the resurrection of Jesus? Like, I couldn't even imagine the number that that is. But it is the marker of God's people, the resurrected Christ. It's actually pretty well documented that the early church, as important as the cross is, right? As, as, as important as that symbol on that, you know, on that table is and, and up on the, the, the pulpit up there and, and how important we celebrate it. The early church primarily preached the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection was the display that the cross what, meant what it meant. The resurrection was not just Christ's victory, but your victory and my victory. Now, we can, we can either, there, there's two options when it comes to the resurrection and believing it. It's either true or it's made up, right? I mean, there's, there's no like third option of like, he was kind of resurrected, right? It, it, there's, there's two options. It's true or it's made up. And there's tons of good evidence and I could make an argument for, for why I, I don't believe it's raise uh, why, why it was uh, made up. Um, but there is a theory that, that Jesus somehow, you know, was, this is a very popular theory, the swoon theory, that Jesus was in the tomb and that he actually didn't die. But somehow, two days, three days later, he managed to wake up and with no medical attention, no fluids for his body, he managed to push off the stone, come out, and when he showed up to his disciples, he looked so amazing, they thought he had beaten death. That makes complete sense, right? I mean, at best, right, you'd stumble out of the tomb and immediately they would go, we need to get you to a doctor. <laughs> we thought you were dead, but wow, you need some help. But he didn't come that way. But besides that, the, the question is, is, why would you lie? Why would the people lie? And then why would they record the way they did in Scripture? Because no one I know lies in ways that gets them killed. If you survey, this is a pretty well-documented fact of, of, of human psychology. People don't lie to get themselves killed. It's, we, there's something in us that says, if I'm going to die, I should probably die for something that's true. But the disciples, aside from the fact that they all believed this lie, and they all made it up and they convinced each other and they convinced other people, when it came time for them to die for it, they were willing to die for it. But that's not even the point I want to make. I want to make a point that if, if, if it was made up and they lied about it, then they, then they would have written about it that way, right? Now, if we were all together and we, were, we wanted to document a miracle, let's say the miracle that Bland flew up 
over everybody, levitated around for, you know, 15 minutes or whatever, shot lasers out of my eyes or whatever we wanted to say, whatever the miracle was, right, that, that defies the laws of physics as we know it. And, I, and that happened. And we were all together. If, if, if that was true, then we would all, you know, say that. But, but, but there would be a different way of thinking about it if and when we tell people especially. But, but if we were going to make it up that that was the lie, then one of the things we'd want to make sure is our argument was bulletproof, right? We'd want to make sure there's, there's no space for disagreeing with this. There's no space to doubt this because it has to be true. But that's exactly the opposite of the disciples. The 12 disciples, the 11 disciples actually, because Judas is gone, were in a room together. And when Jesus appeared, when, oh, begin with the women. The women came to the, the tomb. They saw Jesus. They went back. You know what they said to the disciples? Uh, he's risen. He's risen. You know what the disciples said? Of course he did. We knew it. No. What did they say? crazy ladies and Peter and, and John got up and they went to the tomb, right? To go look. Why? Because they were like, well, you know, they saw something. It wasn't Jesus, but we'll go look. So they went to the tomb and they struggled to believe and they struggled to believe when he appeared among them, right? He, he, he was like, here, um, hey guys, you got any food? Jesus wasn't hungry. If you're wondering why he ate in Luke 24, it wasn't because he was hungry. Like, man, I'm famished, you know, the whole cross thing, the tomb thing, resurrected, I need some food. No, he wanted to eat. Why? Because ghosts don't eat. We know that, right? I mean, that's kind of a rule. If you're, if you're sitting down at a table and a ghost is there and they start eating your dinner, you know they're not actually a ghost. They're real, physical. And so when Jesus appeared, they didn't want to think he was, a, he, he was like, I need the, them to understand I'm not a ghost. And then they had one of the disciples, right? Doubting Thomas. Why would you write that in if that wasn't true? That's a horrible, horrible thing to include if you're trying to convince people that Jesus really rose, but he didn't. Instead, Downing Thomas is like, I will not believe unless I touch him. And Jesus is like, come on over here, buddy. Right there. You know, touch my body, put your hand in my side. It's me. Then, okay, this is, this is the, this happening over and over again. Then, Matthew 28, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. He's on the mountain in Galilee with all of his disciples, not just the 11, but probably 100 or more. And they're, they're there, and, and it says, you know, they're all come before him. And I love this little line. You just read over it. You don't see it unless you really look at it. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Why would you include that if it was made up? But in fact, what the Gospels do, do for us is give us permission to struggle with it a little bit, to deal with our doubts, to come to Jesus with our doubts, to, 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 to seek the truth of the resurrection safely. But from the beginning, so from the beginning, the, the resurrected Christ has faced, uh, the resurrection of Christ has faced doubts, questions, and curiosity. And even today, I would say it's okay. If you struggle with that, if you're like, I just, I can't get my mind around that. I can't get my heart around. I just, I, I don't know how that happens. Then, then that's okay. I would say this is a safe space for you. And what we can do is, is if, you'll, if you'll mark on your connection card, uh, go to cobrookline.org slash connect. We'll, we'll follow up with you. We'll, I'll give you resources. I'll send you a book. I'll, I'll meet with you. I'll talk with you. So we'll have others that will do that, help you to think through it. Listen, Christianity is not, hey, jettison your brain and jump out into the, the darkness of faith. No, it is the resurrection, I believe, when you actually look at it and look at the facts around it and the other theories, it's at least as good as the other theories. Because as you know, Sherlock Holmes says, once you've removed the impossible, Whatever's left, as improbable as it might be, is the truth. 
And in that sphere is that just once, just once, a human being who happened to be the son of God came back from the dead, never to die again. I love um, even how we think about science in this way. Sarah uh, Bodville Rolls, who's an associate professor, senior scientist, specializing in evolutionary biology and education at Michigan State, after stating why she believed in the resurrection and why science and, and uh, faith are not mutually exclusive, I love this. She says, personally, I, chose to be- I choose to believe that not all things worth knowing can be examined through the scientific lens, which makes faith entirely reasonable. The entire gospel story is preposterous, a radical and even offensive story of love that is unlike anything else. And I want to be a part of that story. We don't celebrate Jesus the martyr. Christians don't honor Jesus as a good example, even though he was. We don't honor him as a, as a good teacher, even though he was. We honor him as the crucified and risen king. Now, a couple of implications for this, especially for us as we reset and relaunch as a church. As we're, I've told you this a couple of times, we're on Sunday nights, just like we were right before we launched in August, uh, September of 2010. So, we're, we're, we're shooting to get back into the Ridley School, Coolidge Corner School, September. Everything is looking that way right now. Um, and so we're resetting and relaunching as a church. And for us, a couple of implications that I think are huge. And one is that Christ is risen, so we now live for him. Christ is risen, so now we live our lives, our whole lives, for him. Look at verse 14 and 15. Paul says, the love of Christ controls us. Like stop and pause on that word for a moment. Not the love of Christ informs us. The love of Christ influences us. No, the love of Christ controls us. The love that caused him to die on the cross and rise from the grave for you and me to have eternal life. That love now controls us. Look, and he died for all that those who might, uh, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen. This text is telling us that the cross and the resurrection, the, the death of Christ and Jesus' victory over the grave is because you are loved. You are loved here today, right now. And we're literally a new people. Jesus didn't come to help you out. Jesus didn't come to improve your, your condition. This is, this is not extreme makeover. Right? He didn't come and like, hey, you know, we'll, we'll take this house. We're going to fix this house up. Or this, this person, we're going to put some makeup on them. Or we're going to buy them uh, some clothes and cut their hair and, you know, all of that. And look, here they are. No, that's, that's improvement. Jesus didn't do that. He literally came to make us new. And we are loved, and there is literally nothing we contributed to it. Yet how many of us fall back into an old work ethic? So we're saved. We affirm this as a church. We've affirmed it since we began. It is at the core of what we believe in the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by church attendance, and not by reading our Bibles, and not being a good person, but by faith alone. And yet somehow we, we kind of put that in the rearview mirror and go, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but now I really need to work for God. 
And we, we feel like God is a cosmically disappointed dad. How many of you are feeling that today? God is up in heaven. Yeah, he saved you. But he's a cosmically disappointed dad who just hopes his kid who, who you know, can't get their life together would just get your life together and, 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 and start acting right, right? That, that he's like disappointed in you all the time and you're just living under that. That's not grace. That's works. That's the reverse gospel. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the whole motive then for, for us living the Christian life to live for him is because he died and rose from the grave for us. It's not a past experience that we had that doesn't affect us now. It is what he did for us once and for all, and we're meant to live in that. So we live now for him out of gratitude. I love the way um, J.D. Greer uses the illustration of a friend paying your debt. And he says, you know, imagine, imagine you come home tonight, right? You come home, you walk up to your, your apartment, your house, and, and uh, a friend is sitting on the front doorstep. And they're like, oh, I was here the whole time you were gone. Um, and, and somebody came by and, and you owed them a debt. So I, I paid it and, and you're good. Now, how would you respond to that? Well, it kind of depends on the debt, isn't it? If they said, hey, the DoorDash guy from last night came by, you shortchanged them a buck. So I paid him. That's one response, right? You'd be like, hey, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, what if they said, hey, the mafia came by. They were going to kill you. You owe $1.5 million to them for your gambling debt. They were here to take you out. I paid it for you. You're all good. Totally different response, right? It better be. What would your response be to that person but to literally fall on your knees and go, thank you, and literally go, what, what can I do for you? What do you want of me? You've basically paid for my life. And I'm afraid that most of us do not dwell on the crucified and risen Christ enough. We read over it, just like I read the text at the beginning, that he died and rose. He died and rose. Instead of understanding the joy, the gratitude, the love, and the adoration that flows when you actually really get that. I know many of us are not experiencing it right now, right? COVID was tough really was. It was hard on everybody. I don't know anybody who flourished through COVID except Amazon, right? <laughs> but, but no individuals, well, Jeff Bezos, but nobody personally, individually flourished because, because it was so hard and, and, and life now kind of getting back to a normal, I don't know if you still, I mean, there's so many good things we're experiencing, gathering again, going out to eat, going to see friends. I went to the movie the other night it's crazy, like in a movie theater. Ate popcorn. It was great. But there's this like carryover, this little bit of a residual feeling. And there's a lot of discussion of like a collective trauma that we've experienced. And some of you are right now going, I just don't experience this joy you're talking about. I don't experience this life in Christ right now. I'm not experiencing what it means to live in the resurrected Christ's power. And you feel that. And the problem is, you think that is your obstacle instead of your opportunity to experience it. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says to Paul, when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, his weakness, he goes, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness. That's crazy, right? Content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. What if you have been looking at your weakness in the wrong way? You've been looking at your weakness as the reason you're not able to walk with God fully, as the thing that's keeping you from walking with God fully, when in fact, Christ is saying, no, I'm not surprised you're weak. The cross is the sign that you're weak, right? Listen, there is nothing that surprises Jesus less than the fact that you are weak. Nothing. But somehow we think we ought to be strong, and then out of that strength, we live in the resurrection power. Instead of understanding it's not our self-sufficiency, but Christ's sufficiency that makes us strong. And that's the invitation for us to live for him today out of that resurrection power. Listen, I'm not saying that, you know, that means that everything's going to go fantastic for you. That's not what Paul said there, was it? No, he said just the opposite. He says, so I've learned to even be content with difficult times because in those moments, Christ's power shows up. And yet many of you are so sorry for your struggles and weaknesses. You feel like God does, you're like, God doesn't really, I don't know if God really wants to, to help me. I've not helped myself a lot, right? I'll give you an illustration of how ridiculous that is. Um, <laughs> This week, uh, a friend of mine, uh, his two-year-old daughter, they were going to bed one night. She wasn't feeling real well. Something seemed to be bothering her, so they kept her in the room with her, with them, um, uh, just to keep an eye on her. And they were like, when she falls asleep, we'll take her to her room and put her in bed. She ended up having a seizure. Like the whole eyes rolled back in the head, shaking violently, couldn't respond, um, seizure. Now, they called the ambulance, they came, uh, like, you know, for eight, 10 minutes, the, the, parent, the parents were there caring for the child. Um, and, you know, ambulance came and they went in the ambulance and, and spent the entire night in the hospital. Now, the good news is everything's okay. The doctors think that it's probably just a very rare thing that happens to small children at this age, like one or 2% of children um, in this age experience this with no massive underlying issues. Um, but they've got an appointment uh, here in the city uh, this week to double check that. But um, but she's fine. But can you imagine this little girl coming coming home? Like she, you know, she came home next next evening, and uh, she just looks at mom and dad. And says, I'm so sorry. I had a seizure yesterday. I'm so sorry. I kept you guys up all night long. I am so. I need to apologize to you. I need to. What can I do to make it up to you? If any child did that, you would immediately think, who are these parents? There is something wrong with these parents that this child would feel so sorry, so guilty, so ashamed that she was sick, right? No, because a parent delights in caring for their children, even and especially in those hard moments. And that's how Jesus cares for us. That's how the father cares for us. And to live in the power of the resurrected Christ is to live in your own weakness to experience his strength. You see, living for Jesus, what Paul was talking about here, and we now live life for him, 
also really means to live by Jesus, by his power, by his strength. So that's the first implication. We want to be a church that's not for people who have it together. We want to be a church where it's safe not to have it together. We want to be a church that rejoices in the fact that we are weak, but Christ is strong. We want to be a church that someone who comes in who's weak doesn't go, well, I can't be a part of that group. Look how strong they are. Look how much they have it all together. Look how, how great their lives are and how they seem to be, you know, you know, perfect. No, we want to be a church that welcomes people and goes, guess what? If you have weaknesses, come on in. We're weak too. We just found Jesus and he meets us in our weaknesses and he can meet you too. So the second implication then. Christ is risen, so we live for him. Now Christ is risen, so we live to make him known. So if Christ, if Jesus, really did die on the cross, rose from the grave like what we just talked about, what could be more natural for us than to want to tell other people about him? If he had died, if he died in our place and he rose victorious over the grave and he gives us his resurrection power for us to live in our weakness, to meet us in our weakness, we find strength in our struggles. We find help when we are broken. We find wholeness. When we, when we, when we are alone, we find peace in him. What would be more natural than to want to tell someone else about that? And that's what Paul's saying in verses 18 through 20. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in other words, the message that reconciled you, the thing that you're experiencing living by Christ now is the message that he wants you to then share with others. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul is saying, you, the very thing that has has changed your life, the thing that has made you from uh, an old creature to being a new creature in Christ now, that thing, that message, that hope is yours to share, yours to deliver, yours to, 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 to bring to other people. The infinite God has chosen to reconcile you and and has given you this message of reconciliation to share with others. You know, as a a church, we need to identify needs in our city. We need to look at the very real needs and issues of our city. We we need to address things like uh, poverty, injustice, family brokenness, abuse, and more. We need to see these things and we need to, uh, uh, to, to address them. But let me say this as clearly as I can, with, in no uncertain terms. The single greatest need for every person in this city, every person, no exceptions, is to be reconciled to their creator through Christ. That's the greatest need And it is an illusion that Satan deceives us when we look out to think people are okay. What a terrible thing that they would actually be okay in this world. Life's good, seem to be okay, seem to be nice people, have good jobs, they're not mean, they're not robbing people, they seem to be a nice person. And then they stand before God and face judgment. City on a Hill was started to know Christ and to make him known, to be a counter 
cultural community that displays and declares this gospel message to our city. And every person in our city, my hope, my prayer, it's a grandiose prayer, and there's no way to measure it, but it's still a great, awesome vision, is that we would give every man, woman, and child the opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. Listen, we are not selling a used car. We are mail carriers. We deliver the mail. What happens in that person is between God and them. But we deliver the mail. And the mail is the best news that any person can hear. I read a, read a story this week or a couple weeks ago. It's, it just stuck with me. The moment I read it, I was like, oh, this is, this is a metaphor. I hear like a, a horrible, horrible metaphor. But uh, a woman, if you, uh, this is an article I read, a woman in, um, woman in Oregon died homeless, unaware that she had an unclaimed $884,000 inheritance. Her mother had died four years earlier. This, this poor woman, homeless woman, had struggled with mental illness, with addictions, obviously homelessness. And, and, and what that money could have done to get her the help that she needed, it could have transformed her life. And it was the hope she needed. But the message never got to her. Now, she in her own choice may have said, I don't care, and walked away from that inheritance. Maybe. Maybe she did that. That's her choice. But the fact that the message never got to her breaks my heart. And it should break our heart that there are people in this city who don't know the gospel. Worse yet, there are people in this city who think they know the gospel. They have mis horrible misconceptions about the gospel because of how Christians are portrayed in the media and how Christians sometimes speak out publicly. And they think the gospel is about that instead of understanding it's about this. It's about the crucified and risen Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.13, just a chapter earlier, we believe, therefore we speak. We believe, therefore we speak. So we said in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father. I believe in, in, in Jesus, the Son of God. I believe in the Holy Spirit. We speak to others because we believe. We are saved and sent as ambassadors for the King. Christ has sent you into your workplace. Seriously. You want to know how your coworkers are supposed to, to ultimately find out about Jesus? God puts you there. That doesn't mean you're, you can, maybe you're not responsible for everyone, but I believe God puts very specific people around us and gives us those opportunities if we will be faithful. Now, I'm not saying like in the middle of a business meeting, you announce Jesus as king, but, but lunch, dinner, get together on a weekend, yeah, engage, love people. And, 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 and you know what's so crazy is all the research shows that the vast majority of people who don't go to church are perfectly comfortable discussing your faith and what you believe as long as you're not pushy and trying to, you know, you need this right now. But like you just say, hey, this is what Jesus did for me. Have you ever considered it? Like, and, and, and how many people are willing to do that? Some of you feel inadequate about this, right? 
How many of us across the room would raise our hand? We're struggling with our walk with Christ right now. I'm struggling. I'm just feeling really weak. Honestly, when it comes down to it, in my workplace, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have the reputation or I've established the beachhead of being a really good Christian. I mean, kind of they know I go to church, but I'm like, I don't know that I feel a little compromised in that. I'm not sure that, that I can share it. You know what the good news is? What did we just say about the weakness, our weakness? Again, you're looking at it wrong. You're looking at the power of the gospel as the power of your intellect to answer all the right, all the questions, right? Or, the, or, or to be so convincing or to have your life so display Christ that your neighbor, your coworker, who's never heard you talk about Jesus just comes into your office one day and said, you know what? I have seen you doing all these things. How can I be saved, right? We think that somehow we ought to be living and acting in that way and speaking in that way when in fact it is our very weakness and our very brokenness that can become the space for us to talk about Jesus. You know what you can do in your workplace that will display the actual authenticity of Christianity, of, of your Christian faith? Own your junk. Own it when you blow it. And ask for forgiveness. That's crazy, right? The workplace. Workplace is all about presenting strength. But what if you owned it and displayed an authentic walk with Christ? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, again, just a chapter earlier in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If you've never experienced the, this message, if you've never experienced the power of this gospel, of the, the, the crucified and risen Christ living in you, making you a new creation, that invitation, the beautiful thing is about, is available right now in this very moment to anyone who will believe. Whether you're here physically, you're watching online, watching a week from now, it doesn't matter. It's available at any point. And a person is, turns away from your sin. You look at the sin that, that has separated you from God and you repent of it. You throw it away, you dis, disown it, and you look to Christ and you go, you're my only hope. You're my only hope that you died in my place I believe you did. I believe, I believe you rose from the grave to give me victory. The beauty of that is you can do that right now, right here. But for those of you that are Christians, I suspect across this room, we would universally say, I'm not sure I've really been living in the resurrected power of Christ. I've been living in the, under that cosmically disappointed dad, hiding my weakness from him, rather than bringing my weakness to him so that his power could be made perfect. So as we respond now, move into a time of response, this is a time for you to repent. You've heard me say many times, Martin Luther in his first of the 95 theses nailed to the door of Wittenberg said, uh, the entire Christian life is a life of repentance. So live in that repentance. It's a beautiful place to be met every single time by grace. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you died and rose. How could we possibly ever repay you? And yet you don't even look for that. That's not even your math. Your math is us 
living dependent on your grace. Every day in our weakness, finding your strength. Every day in our brokenness, finding your wholeness. I pray that we would not see our Christian walk as us needing to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting ourselves together so that we can really live for you, but that we would just be open and honest with you. And that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that lives in us today, would change our lives this week. We ask you, Father, Son, and Spirit, come in your name. Amen.